Oh. Hi, Tumble listeners. Uh, We're currently enjoying our summer break, and we hope you are too. To celebrate the summer and to keep you company on a long road trip adventure, today we've got a super fun combo of Tumble episodes all about food. I hope you're hungry because we'll be making pit stops at scientifically delicious restaurants. On today's menu of episodes, we're serving up the science behind your favorite foods, smells, pumpkins, bacteria, and even koalas' favorite leaves. Get ready to dig in. Our first episode up is the science of your favorite food. So let's get started. Oh, 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 delicious. Can't wait. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today we're talking about why we love our favorite foods. Mm, This episode is going to make me hungry. It's going to give you a lot of food for thought. (laughs) Yuck, yuck. It turns out what we think is tasty isn't just a matter of opinion. A lot of science is behind it. We'll hear all about it after this. We asked our listeners what their favorite foods are and why they like them. My name is Cass, and I'm five years old. My favorite food is fries. They are crunchy and salty. Sometimes they're too salty for my mouth. Hi, my name is Vivian, and I am nine years old. My favorite food is oranges. I love them because they are sweet, healthy, and fun to peel. My name is Coven, and I'm seven years old. My favorite food is pancake. I love the maple syrup. The maple syrup's the best when I add it. My name is Niam. I'm five years old. And these are the things I like. I like pasta, pizza, and I like popcorn with pity pity on it. All these foods sound delicious. And Niam really likes foods that start with P, apparently. But what's pity pity? I've never heard of that before. His mom told me that's actually peri-peri, a chili-flavored spice. Okay, well, so I noticed a lot of, like, salty, sweet, and spicy foods in that list. I wonder why that is. (laughs) Let's ask the rest of our listeners, what's your favorite food and why do you like it? When we come back, we'll talk to a scientist to discover the science behind your favorite tasty treats. Our expert today is one of our favorite guests, Rob Dunn. He's an ecologist and a science writer. Oh, he was in our episode, Discover the Wildlife of Your Home, which is all about insects that live in houses. So are we going to be talking about eating bugs here? (laughs) Fortunately not. Rob has written a book about the evolution of flavor and the things we think are delicious. His research started with questions about what we choose to put on our plates. What do we know about how we choose, what we choose to eat, and then how that's changed over time? What did our ancestors eat, and how did they choose? Rob's curiosity made him think about the world before refrigerators, before kitchens, before farming, even before fire. 
to what humans only ate, what they could find on the land. So if you imagine your ancestors out in the environment, they're in a jungle and they need to find food. The trick for them would be how do they find the right foods that their body needs? Ooh, so we're going back in time to our hunting gathering past when the world was a giant mystery supermarket in which you've never heard of any of the foods and some of them might kill you. Exactly. Our ancestors had no packaging to go by telling them what's healthy and what's not. They had to rely on taste. Part of what taste does is it's a kind of evolutionary trick that leads animals to find those things that tend to be rare in the environment and leads them to avoid those things that tend to be dangerous. Uh, so what does that mean? In general, things that you can eat from the land are harder to find than things you cannot eat from the land. <laughs> yeah, I guess for every uh, ear of corn, there's like a thousand rocks. <laughs> <laughs> Taste guides us to the kinds of things that we need and warns us away from what we shouldn't eat. So avoid those rocks. <laughs> So what kind of tastes are we talking about here? So scientists use taste to refer just to those sensations that come from what is detected by taste receptors on the tongue. Taste receptors are inside our taste buds, those bumpy little hills on our tongues. And scientists have matched those receptors to the taste that we know. So the tastes that everybody agrees about are sweetness, and so this is a sugar cube, sour, and so think about a lemon, saltiness, salt, um, bitterness, which is like if you drink some of your parents' coffee, that is bitterness, and then umami. Uh, umami, the taste that's most fun to say, but hardest to define. <laughs> it's kind of savory. We experience these tastes every day as part of the foods we like or don't like. But for our ancestors, those tastes were more importantly signals for what they needed to survive. And so for our ancestors, nitrogen was rare. Nitrogen is an element that's very important for our bodies. It makes up some of the most basic molecules for life. And it's found in foods with umami tastes. And so umami taste receptors rewarded them for finding that nitrogen. Huh. So umami isn't tasty just because it's tasty. It's a clue for what's inside that food. Right. And think about how we crave sweets. I crave them so bad. <laughs> that's because sugar is a molecule that's really important to our bodies. Can I actually have a cookie now? And our ancestors also needed sugar to keep the energy going through the body. And so sweet taste receptors evolved to reward our ancestors for finding sugar. Wait, so where do they find candy in the jungle? So they have those little candy shops where you like <laughs> scoop up candy and buy it by the pound because I love those places. No, their sugars were in the form of plants like fruits or natural sweeteners like honey. Okay, so even though he wasn't eating candy bars, I can still blame my sweet tooth on great, 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 grandfather Ugg. Yes, you can also give him credit for your dislike of bitter things. And so bitter is usually a warning, like this is poison, you shouldn't eat it. Bitter is like a big flashing danger sign for your mouth. Now sometimes by the time you've tasted something and it's bitter, it's too late and, uh, you know, it's killed you. But trial and error is tricky. 
Lots of poison in the prehistoric mystery supermarket game. I can't imagine how that supermarket stayed in business. <laughs> Fortunately, humans could learn and remember things. The other thing that happens, though, is that once you find things that, are, that aren't bitter, that don't seem to be poisonous, and you start eating them, you start to learn that they're good things. And so your brain kind of builds up a little library of what's good and bad. So here's what will kill me, and here's what will not kill me, which I think are probably the two most important categories in life. <laughs> exactly. And get this, kids are even more tuned in to good versus bad taste than adults. How's that? One of the things that we know is different in adults and kids is that kids tend to like tastes that are a little bit different than adults. And so they have more fondness for sweet things and salty things. And they dislike bitter things more than adults. I guess that explains why our listeners chose salty or sweet foods as their favorites and nobody said, like, radishes. <laughs> or coffee. <laughs> or coffee. <laughs> These preferences go back to prehistoric kid lifestyles. And what we think is that this was useful when all of our ancestors were living as hunter-gatherers. And so they just had to go f hunt and find their food. Hunter-gatherer kids also searched for food, mostly on their own. So you're saying they had no adult following them in the forest saying, eat this broccoli, eat it. <laughs> it's good, I'll put cheese on it. But there was also no one to keep them from straight up eating poison. So their bitter taste receptors basically were the ones screaming at them instead. If you take one more bite of that, mister, you will die! <laughs> Kids also need more salt than adults do, so they were even more driven to find salty foods. Kid tongues are really tuned in to avoid bitter things and to go straight for that kind of salty, sweet, fatty potato chip that also maybe has some other weird flavor associated with it. So basically, pickiness kept kids alive. Yeah, back then, parents weren't trying to raise adventurous eaters. Eating was the adventure. <laughs> and so was just living. <laughs> Rob says that in a way, kids are still hunter-gatherers. When your parents aren't looking, if you're in the kitchen and like you're standing on the tall chair to get to that cabinet where maybe you think there's sometimes chocolate, just think of that moment, that bold exploratory moment as being very much like what kids used to do when they were all looking for fruits, they were digging in the ground maybe to find a beehive where there was a bunch of honey. And so you're reenacting very ancient traditions. That scene is definitely played out in our house, but how do we know kids used to do that? Parents didn't write it down. Caught little Ugug sticking his hand in the beehive again today. What a little scamp. <laughs> That's a good question. So we can study ancient bones, we can study ancient stones and stone tools. But one of the most powerful approaches that scientists have is to study our closest living relatives, and so chimpanzees and bonobos. Wait, chimps and bonobos? How do they tell scientists what our ancestors were up to? Chimpanzees and bonobos are not our ancestors, but they provide a kind of window into how our ancestors might have lived. Our hunter-gatherer lifestyle wouldn't have been too different from our primate relatives. Searching for food without cooking or farming, and chimps in particular, have similar tastes to us. The taste receptors of chimps and those of humans are very, very similar. 
That's why scientists believe that studying chimp eating habits can help us build a picture of our own past. As we look to chimps, they can provide us a way to think about the choices our remote ancestors would have made when living in the forest and climbing through trees and looking for fruits. So if you see a chimp spit something out, you probably won't like it either, especially after the chimp's been chewing it. (laughs) Yeah, it's only been recently that humans invented something that would change our food forever. The first agriculture is about 12,000 years ago. So, like, 12,000 years ago seems to me like kind of a long time ago. I definitely don't know anyone who was alive back then. I'm talking recently in the whole history of human evolution. Before agriculture, which means farming, humans spent around 7 million years hunting and gathering. So we were hunter-gatherers for much, much longer than we were farmers. Just a blink of the eye but it transforms what's available to us in terms of food. After we started to farm, we could choose foods that one, wouldn't maybe kill us, and two, tasted good. From there, taste became more about flavor and deliciousness than survival. Fast forward about 12,000 years and we have pizza and popcorn and pancakes smothered in maple syrup and french fries covered in salt. So I get why we prefer certain tastes in general, but why do some of us like foods that others don't? Yeah, so there are lots of reasons that we have differences in our own tastes. Part of that is physical, but hidden deep within our cells in our DNA. And so, for example, different people have different genes that make their bitter taste receptors different. And so you might detect something as bitter that my tongue doesn't detect as bitter. Oh, wow. So the same food that tastes bad to me really doesn't taste bad to you? Exactly. So that's the physical part of our taste. The other part is our experience, all the memories and smells that come along with eating food. And so the details of what you've eaten, where you've eaten, which of those things have made you happy, teach you which things are are good smells and which ones are bad smells. So your experience around food has a lot to do with how those foods taste to you. Exactly. But even though we get to decide on our own favorite foods, our tastes are really shaped by our ancestors, who had a lot fewer food choices than us. And so if you think about your ancestors, think about someone gathering. That is true for the nearly the entirety of our human story. I think our ancestors would have really appreciated a piece of pizza once in a while. I feel like it just makes me appreciate pizza even more than I already do. So think about your favorite food. What tastes are you experiencing when you eat it? The known tastes are sweet, salty, sour, umami, and bitter. Which of these tastes makes your food taste so good to you? Now think about your experience. Is there a smell or a memory that makes you like that food more than others? Draw a picture of your favorite food and describe on paper what makes it taste so good. Then send it to us. We'd love to see it. Oh, wow. Oh. That was just a great starter course. 
I hope you learned a lot about your favorite foods. I know I did. For our next course, we've got another great food-related show, but not for humans. Enjoy the tale of the hungry koala. Waiter, over here, next. Yeah, all right, all right. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today, we're talking koalas. We're looking past the cuddliness to discover how they eat a food that's toxic to most animals. Wait, koala food is toxic? It is. So today we're going to hear the story of some very picky koalas and the scientist who came up with a weird way to get them to try new foods. So most people think of koalas as one of the most legitimately adorable creatures on the planet. But I talked to a scientist who sees them quite differently. Um, They're basically just a big bag of guts. (laughs) That's Michaela Blyton. She's a biologist at the University of Queensland in Australia. I mean, you think of a koala as being soft and squishy, and that's sort of why they don't have a huge amount of stomach muscle. They just have a lot of guts. (laughs) I thought it was just really that they're stuffed animals brought to life. Nope. 100% furry bags of guts with a cute head. And what's in those guts is the secret to how koalas eat their famous diet. Eucalyptus leaves are really tough. They're really fibrous. They're not very tasty. They have a lot of toxins in them and not a lot of good nutrients. And so they're really hard to eat and really hard to live off. And most animals can't. Somehow koalas eat only these toxic leaves and nothing else. And so that makes them very interesting is how do they manage to do that? And that's where their microbes come into play, the bacteria that they have in their guts. Just like humans, koalas have bacteria or microbes in their guts to help break down food into energy. But Michaela has discovered that they can also turn koalas into very picky eaters. How did she find that out? With two fascinating experiments and a lot of koala poop. The story starts in the midst of a koala crisis in a place called Cape Otway. Cape Otway is at the bottom of Australia and the koalas there have actually reached a really, really high density. There's an awful lot of koalas there. Cape Otway sticks out into the southern ocean. It's bordered by gorgeous beaches and beyond the coast, there's forests of eucalyptus. Making uh, Cape Otway a perfect koala paradise. Yes, there were drinks with umbrellas for all. But a few years ago, that all changed. What happened was that in 2013, the number of koalas got so high that they ate all of the food that they had, all of the trees' leaves, and killed the trees as a result because they had no leaves left. And from this, it meant that then the koalas had nothing left to eat and, very sadly, meant that a lot of them actually starved. Oh, yeah, that's really sad. Even though koalas are a vulnerable species in other parts of Australia, Cape Otway had the opposite problem. There were just koalas everywhere. I mean, we have one photo of 26 koalas sitting in a single tree. 
they were literally everywhere. Normally, biologists expect to find one koala per hectare, which is roughly the size of a baseball field. But at the height of the koala crisis, you could see 20 koalas in one hectare in Cape Otway. So there are 20 times more koalas than you would normally find in the same sort of forest. You know, we all sort of hope that we'll come home to find a koala infestation, but apparently it wouldn't be as cute as we think it would be. Yeah, especially when it comes to the actual environment. The koala population in Cape Otway devastated the forests, which hurt the wallabies, bandicoots, and birds that live there too. So what did people do to help the koalas in the rest of the ecosystem? The main conservation strategy was to catch the koalas and move them to a different place where there were fewer koalas. But when Michaela visited Cape Otway in the midst of the crisis, she saw something that made her wonder what had really happened there. So it's quite strange walking through it because you're walking through all of these dead trees and then all of a sudden you walk into this lush, healthy forest. Wait, there, there were trees that koalas didn't eat? Like everything else is devastated but just this one thing? Yes, and this is a really important thing to know here. There are over 900 species of eucalyptus tree in Australia. Wow, I really just thought there was just one kind of eucalyptus tree and it was called eucalyptus. <laughs> Me too. So in terms of Cape Otway, there are two species of eucalypt there. There's managum. Managum is a species that the koalas were chowing down on. It's relatively high in protein, which is what we all need to stay healthy. Whereas the other species, which is called messmate stringybark, it's quite fibrous and quite low in protein. I mean, I understand why they wouldn't want to eat that. Who would want something called stringy bark? Maybe, maybe they should package it differently. Call it string bark and they can peel the bark away and like have... Kind of like a string cheese thing. (laughs) Yeah, 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 I agree. There we go. But marketing issues aside, most Cape Otway koalas took a strong stance on messmate stringybark. They would literally rather die than eat it. When this population got really, really high in abundance and they ate all of the managum, they didn't start eating messmate. And this was really confusing to us because... There are some koalas down there on the Cape that live in messmate and feed only on messmate for their entire lives. They actually prefer it to the managum. And so we looked at this and went, why are these koalas starving? And yet this other bunch of koalas are sitting over here munching on the messmate quite happily. So, like, are the managum koalas just, like, super picky toddlers in disguise, like, refusing to eat anything but macaroni and cheese? Or maybe they just didn't know how to eat it. Some people thought, well, maybe they just don't eat messmate because they don't know it's food. I never really felt that was likely because if you're starving, you're kind of going to try things, right? Yeah, I sort of imagine that's how come we eat lobster now. <laughs> like, who else was going to be like, oh, that looks like food? <laughs> Michaela was skeptical of this they-don't-know-it's-food idea, but she wanted to test it out. So she and her colleagues caught some of the managum koalas and put them up in a mini koala hotel with an all-you-can-eat buffet of messmates. 
And I hope linen sheets. And when we brought them in, we thought, let's just see what they do with Messmate. We haven't given them anything yet. Just, just see what they do. And what we found was that you put some Messmate in their enclosure and they go, ooh, what's this? It's something new. And they chow down on it. The next night you give them Messmate, they go, not so sure about this. And they don't eat very much of it. The third night, they eat even less. So I guess the koalas, like, when they were leaving their reviews on TripAdvisor of the Koala Hotel, like, they were probably like, you know, accommodations, four stars. (laughs) The tree life, yeah, okay, five stars. But man, the food would not go back. (laughs) So what we found was that over time, they learnt that they didn't want to eat messmate. At first, they thought that it was food, but then when they ate it, they probably felt sick and went, oh, okay, maybe I won't eat that anymore. That's probably not a good idea for me. So messmate gave them the tummy troubles, which I think we all can relate to that. It's like you and barbecue. <laughs> or anyone who's eaten like a jalapeno casserole. <laughs> So it wasn't just that koalas were bad at recognizing what was food. And so Michaela started thinking about their microbes. What we thought was, well, we know that the gut bacteria that koalas have are really important to helping them digest their food. And we thought, well, we know that some koalas have different microbes to other koalas. Maybe... The microbes that the managum koalas have just aren't able to cope with the messmate. Hmm, so it's like uh, some koalas had a messmate allergy. Basically. They're messmate intolerant. <laughs> but to really understand Michaela's hypothesis and how she's about to test it, let's talk a bit more about my favorite subject, koala guts. Mm. So koalas have a really, really massive colon and a really massive cecum. Okay, so I know what a colon is. That's the large intestine where you keep your poop. But what's a cecum? It's basically the holding station in a koala's digestive system where the microbes swirl around, slowly breaking down the eucalyptus. So their cecum is actually about 1.6 meters long. So if you think about a koala, a koala is less than a meter long. Oh, wow. So koalas really are a bag of guts. Yeah, but maybe koalas, so adorable, aren't born with these great microbes just ready to go. They get it from their mamas. So to make sure that the babies get the bacteria they need, the mother produces something that we call pap, which is basically really really sloppy poo (laughs) god are we doing another poop one (laughs) yes yes we are i came here for cute furry things and you're staying for the poop (laughs) this pap that michaela is talking about is like the transition food from the milk that baby koalas drink while they're inside their mother's little marsupial pouches It contains the microbes that will help them eat eucalyptus. And so what the baby will do is it will stick its head out of the pouch and it will nuzzle at the mother's cloaca until she starts producing this and then it'll hoe down on it. Wait, so you're telling me that the baby koala eats its mom's poop? 
Yes. And it basically is nuzzling the mom's butt until she poops. Oh, God. <laughs> it's like, hey, mom. Hey, mom. Hungry. Hungry. <laughs> Let me just poke you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't think I'll ever look at baby koalas the same way again. <laughs> Anyhow, Michaela knew that these mama microbes set the table for what koalas could eat later in life. And she also knew that it was really unusual that a whole group of koalas would eat only one species of eucalypt. And again, that brought us back to the microbiome and wondering whether changing their gut bacteria would allow them to expand what they could feed on. Meaning, could new gut bacteria allow them to eat messmates? Without hurting their adorable koala tummies? That's an interesting idea, but how do you give a koala new gut bacteria? With a poop pill. Can we call it the poop pill? The poop pill, <laughs> yeah. That, that would be very appropriate. Hold on. Like, a poop pill? A pill made of poo? Yes, a poop pill. But it's not as wild an idea as it sounds. Michaela was inspired by human fecal transplants, which has become almost a standard way of using the bacteria found in poop from a healthy person to cure gut diseases in a sick person. This is all familiar to me. If you've listened to our episode on the science of poop, you know what we're talking about. So we went, hmm, well, it works for humans. We can get, you know, new bacteria into a human. We've seen that in rodents you can change what they'll eat by changing their microbes in this way. Wonder if it works for koalas. So Michaela and her colleagues set out to make, for the first time ever, a koala fecal transplant. So is there like a standard recipe for poop transplants? I'm not sure if there's a poop transplant cookbook, but the main ingredient is definitely poop. And we found these koalas that always eat messmate. And so we thought, okay, they have the right microbes. They eat messmate. Then what we did was we literally put a piece of shade cloth underneath the koala, came back the next day and looked what they'd left for us. <laughs> what was it? Like some kind of gift, maybe a sweater, a gift card to Starbucks? <laughs> Surprise, it was poop. <laughs> oh, who could have guessed? Exactly what the scientists wanted. So we collected their pellets, their fecal pellets. They took these pellets back to a lab and spun them around really fast in a special machine. The spinning separated the undigested leaves and other gunk from the good stuff, the bacteria. And then what we do is we scrape off the little bacteria and those little fine particles from that top, and we put that into the capsule. And that's the poop pill. Yep. So do they just like set it down next to the koala's breakfast at the koala hotel and say, you're a poop pill, sir. Don't forget to review us on TripAdvisor. <laughs> Not exactly. <laughs> we have something called a pill popper. Now, you might have seen this if you have a cat or a dog that you need to worm each month. It's basically a stick that launches the pill into an animal's throat so that they swallow it. And from there, the pill is on its mission. The capsule had to make its way past the acid in the koala's stomach to a place where the bacteria could survive. So once that capsule went past the stomach, it broke open and let the bacteria out in the hindgut, which is where they needed to be. 
Sort of like a spy catapulting itself down the throat. It's hand springing through the stomach. Yeah, once they get past the vat of acid, then they can, you know, get to the prize. <laughs> At least that was the plan. So the first thing we needed to do is to work out, did we actually get live microbes into the koala? Did it do what we wanted it to do? How did they figure that out? They waited for the koalas to poop. Straightforward. <laughs> if the pill had done its job, they should have found even more mess-made microbes in the poop than they put it in. And that's what they saw. And we're like, great, this is what we want. We've got the bacteria in there and they're establishing and growing. But the amount of bacteria was different for each koala, meaning that the microbes did better in some koala guts than others. And then the next thing was to go, okay, so we've got the bacteria in there. Does it change what the koala will eat? It was time for another messmate-only buffet at the Koala Hotel. What, what do we got here? Messmate? Again? <laughs> As the koalas approached the messmate buffet, the scientists watched in anticipation. Will they eat it? And what we found is the ones that it worked really well for they were willing to eat quite a lot of messmate. The ones that it didn't work as well for, not so much. They ate some, but not as much. So does that mean that the fecal transplants were successful or not? Michaela and her colleagues were able to give the koalas new gut bacteria, and that's the main thing that they'd wanted. But the poop transplant wasn't an instant cure for every koala's tummy troubles. We find also in humans when we give them fecal transplants, it works for some people, doesn't work so well for other people. There's always a bit of variability. Poop certainly isn't for everyone. Nope. But Michaela sees these fecal transplants as a potential way to help koalas that have been moved, like those from Cape Otway, and get adjusted into their new home environments. If we could give them these capsules before releasing them into a new area with different trees that they have to feed on, then that might help them to adapt to the different diet. Yeah, so it's sort of like a housewarming present, except instead of casserole, it's poop. <laughs> exactly. So if there's another koala crisis, the poop pill may be ready to pop in to help. But there's a bigger lesson for conservation in general. So what our take-home message is, is that it looks like what a koala eats is affected by what microbes they have in their guts. And that's really important because in conservation, we do typically look at the animal and how it interacts with the environment, separate from what's going on inside them. In other words, conservation scientists tend to study ecosystems more than they look at digestive systems. And this is saying maybe we need to take a closer look inside the animal and see what's going on there, because that's important too if we're trying to save these animals. In the meantime, the koala population at Cape Otway is back to its normal size, and the eucalyptus forests are slowly recovering too. The koala crisis was tragic, but Michaela says it taught her a lot about how to do science when so much is at stake. I think the big thing 
with all of this is when anything like this happens, everybody has opinions and science is one of the best ways of finding out which of those ideas is right. Going out and actually testing the idea and finding the answer. And that's how we make sure that when we make decisions in conservation, we're making the right ones based on facts and based on evidence. So now it's your turn to take a closer look at animals' insides. What does your favorite animal eat? Does it have any kind of weird eating habits? And how might its gut help it eat what it eats? Let us know if you find anything out that's both gross and fascinating. We're always interested in things that can be described that way. Hey, Tumble fans. I'm interrupting this show. Sorry. To remind you that you can still support Tumble on Patreon over the summer. And you can get birthday shoutouts for you, your loved ones, or really anyone you want to, including pets and stuffed animals. We'll keep recording them, even though we're on our summer break. To join us on Patreon, just go to patreon.com slash tumblepodcast and pledge. We'll appreciate it so, so much. And now, let's get back to the road trip. Okay, so maybe not everything in that episode was totally appetizing. I, I certainly didn't know that every koala's first meal is its mother's poop. Makes me glad to be a human, honestly. Um, but anyway, we've got another course on its way, and man, I can smell it already. <sighs> Get ready for the science of smell. Oh, that looks amazing. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today, we're sniffing out the science of smell, starting from the kitchen. From stinky cheese to savory meats to sweet desserts, we're asking why foods smell. So clear out your noses. As we focus on our olfactory organs and discover the world of smell science. Today's question comes from our listener, Finn. My name is Finn. I'm 10 years old, and I live in Waterville, New York. I wonder why certain foods smell the way they do, like bananas or cucumbers or chocolate. Maybe foods are made of different chemicals and smell different as a result. To find out, scientists might study the chemicals inside the foods or even study how people smell food. That's a really good question, and it sounds like Finn has a good idea of how scientists might answer it. Yeah, so let's ask our listeners, why do you think foods smell the way that they do? Think about it, because we're going to meet someone who went on her own quest to find the answer for a very personal reason. Our smell expert also happens to be a kid's podcast host. I'm Molly Birnbaum, Editor-in-Chief of America's Test Kitchen Kids and host of the Mystery Recipe Podcast. Molly is the perfect person to answer Finn's question because she wrote a book about her own journey to understand why we smell foods the way that we do. Her story begins just before she was going to start school to become a chef when something 
really unexpected happened. I've always loved food and really wanted to be a chef. I loved cooking, but I was jogging one day and crossing a road and I was hit by a car. And in that accident, I banged the back of my head pretty hard. Oh my gosh, was she okay? She was pretty banged up. Her doctors told her she'll be back to normal after a few months. But while she was recovering at her dad's house, she noticed something missing. My stepmother baked an apple crisp, which was one of my favorite desserts. Molly loved the smell of apple crisp. It reminded her of picking apples every fall when she was little. But when she brought out the apple crisp and everyone was ooing and eyeing over that scent of like butter and apples and cinnamon, I couldn't, I couldn't smell a thing. And that's when I realized, okay, there's something, there's something really wrong here. So she couldn't smell anything? Nothing. And that was a major problem for her life because her dream of becoming a chef depended on her sense of smell. Because without a sense of smell, food loses its flavor. Smell is such an important part of flavor. And so trying to be a chef without a sense of smell didn't really work because you couldn't taste your food at all. Wow. So she couldn't even enjoy food, much less cook it for other people. But can you find your sense of smell again after you lose it? I was really struck by the fact that many doctors couldn't really tell me when I was going to recover, if I was going to recover, what would need to happen in order to recover, which to me seemed crazy because smell is such an important part of your life, which is what I really realized when I couldn't smell. Molly decided to put off starting at the chef school and turned her attention to trying to figure out her new condition. That's when I started to ask people and do some research about this because I just had no idea what to expect. Molly discovered that many people lose or lack the ability to smell. And after she found out she wasn't alone, Molly started to piece together the science of how we smell. So I started by talking to smell scientists. So scientists that work in research labs trying to understand how humans process smell. And the first questions I asked were, you know, how does smell work? I wanted to understand in a healthy nose, how do you smell? She learned that smells are an aromatic connection between chemicals and your brain. When you smell something, you are inhaling and the aromatic compounds are coming into your nose. So these tiny microscopic compounds are literally entering your nose and reaching the top of your nose where the olfactory neurons exist. So Finn was right. Smell does have something to do with the chemicals in food. Yeah, it does. Aromatic compounds are special groups of chemicals that lift easily off food and float tantalizingly into the air. And we have special olfactory neurons, which we can think of as smell cells in our brain, designed to catch those compounds. And so these neurons run from the top of your nose back to your brain. They run through your skull, through something called the cribiform plate, which has tiny, tiny holes. 
After racing through the cribriform plate, the neurons tell our brains about the aromatic compounds or smell molecules. No one knows for sure exactly how the neurons are interpreting the smell molecules, but what we do know is that each of these molecules fits with some kind of neuron that then sends its signal to the brain. Each smell carries a ton of these tiny molecules. You can think of them like a package all bundled up together. So when they're delivered to your brain, it's like a full-on rush of scent information. And it's how your brain interprets that cascade of signals that tells you, I am smelling a banana right now, or I am smelling a piece of steak cooking in the kitchen. Wow, so smell is kind of like your brain screaming at you, smell this! It's a cake. (laughs) Yeah, and foods smell different because each food sends different chemical packages of information. The same food can send different packages at different times. Food goes through all different types of processes as it is growing, as it's ripening, as it's being cooked. And so the chemical makeup of those foods changes in those situations. And as the chemical makeup changes, the smells change. That's so cool. So a ripe banana is sending your brain a totally different smell package than a rotting banana, which I've noticed those things smell different. They do. And your brain interprets or understands those smells as meaning good or bad things, even giving you warnings. Like, smells delicious versus what's that burning versus... (laughs) It's like, run to the kitchen, something's happening. (laughs) (laughs) One way or the other. One way or the other. You're going to run. So going back to Finn's hypothesis, he's right. A food smell is based on its chemicals and how your nose connects to your brain to smell. Those smell cells and connections were destroyed during Molly's accidents. And when my brain bounced, it kind of sheared those neurons off, kind of like a lawnmower over grass. And so suddenly the connection between my nose and my brain was gone. And that's why I couldn't smell. Molly had gotten the basics of smell, but she had lots of questions that couldn't be answered. And there are still questions that we don't understand about that basic processes in smell, which I found really surprising and interesting. I think some of the most interesting things about science are the things that we don't know. Scientists are still trying to find out how the brain gets those signals and why different scents trigger different emotions and memories. That's fascinating, but did Molly ever get her sense of smell back? So my sense of smell came back very slowly over the course of about eight years, give or take, and it really was one scent at a time. One day, Molly was chopping rosemary in the kitchen, really not expecting to smell anything. And then all of a sudden, it hit me. She was overwhelmed by the memory of riding horses past fragrant rosemary bushes. She was so surprised, she didn't even realize what it was that she was experiencing. But after that, smells kept popping up out of nowhere, without warning having smells be so individual and separate really brought each one to my attention in a totally new way and caused me to think about them in a totally new way. Molly now appreciated each smell on its own. Each one had a memory and emotion tied to it, but the smells were slightly different than they'd been before. 
Um, and that's in part because my olfactory neurons were regenerating and regrowing and making new connections. So I think that there was some element of that that changed my sense of smell. Wow, so her brain and her nose got rewired smell by smell. Yeah, now she's got a full but slightly different sense of smell. But that doesn't happen for everyone, and it just goes to show how much we still don't know about our noses. So when I started researching the subject, my assumption was that I was going to find people that knew how it worked and they were going to give me some answers and I could just take that knowledge and go back on my merry way and try and become a chef eventually again. But that didn't happen. Through the process of asking questions, it really struck me how much we still don't know as humans trying to understand the world around us and that the process of science can be long. Molly's quest for smell science discovery changed her life forever. She decided to become a food science writer, and then an editor, and now finally, a podcast host. Which we all know is the ultimate human achievement. True. But the point is that looking for answers leads you down surprising paths. Just follow your nose. So now it's time to head to the kitchen and explore the world of cooking smells. Choose a strong-smelling ingredient, a fruit or vegetable or spice, and take a whiff. Imagine that you've just regained your sense of smell, like Molly. What do you notice about that smell? What memories or feelings does it give you? Then choose a recipe that will bring out the scent of that ingredient. While you prepare it, smell how it changes and ask yourself, what is that smell trying to tell you? Oh, wow. Wow. I, I gotta say, that that course was really delicious. And I'm honestly getting kind of full, but we got two more courses coming. Ugh. So anyway... Our next course is about how a cell's DNA is kind of like a cookbook. And it looks like we've got exactly that course coming up right now. Enjoy the Bacteria Cookbook. Oh. Wow. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today, we're taking an up-close look at the lives of cells. What is the life of a cell like? Like, every day they wake up, they stretch their flagellum, they heat up their cup of uh, sugar, water. <laughs> it's a simple life, but it's a lot more complicated than most people imagine. We're about to peek through the microscope to discover what makes every cell different. Mary Dunlop is a biological engineer who works in the laboratory the same way she works in the kitchen. I'm the sort of cook or baker who like understands the reasons behind the recipes and then likes to go from there. At home, she's known for cobbling together her own recipes with ideas from many different places. Like my husband will ask how to make something and I'm like, oh, you look in, you know, on this website and then through that cookbook and then you use the technique from this other thing. And so that, that's the type of, of engineer I am as well. So what's Mary's equivalent of putting together a recipe when she's actually in her lab? Well, a lab recipe is a science experiment. 
Oh, I guess I never thought about it that way, but you're right. The experiment Mary is cooking up has never been made before. At the end of it, she hopes to figure out why cells that look the same act so differently from each other. Well, that's really interesting. And just like in her own kitchen, she's using... Tools or techniques from very different places and bring them to the problems that we're interested in. So, well, that's an interesting approach, but what kind of problems is she interested in? Cell problems. Cell problems. So you're telling me that it's a problem that cells act differently from each other. Well, it's not a problem for the cells, but it's a problem for Mary and scientists like her who want to understand how cells work on a very basic level. And the reason that we're interested in studying this is that people for a long time have sort of assumed that bacteria are really simple. They're probably not doing anything particularly interesting. Sounds like scientists aren't giving bacteria a lot of credit. I mean, come on, just boring old bacteria. To be fair, bacterial cells are some of the simplest organisms on Earth. They don't have a lot of fancy parts inside of them, so scientists assume that one cell is no different from the next. But that turns out not to be true. When we look at cells under the microscope, what we find is that cells that are genetically identical, which means they have the same DNA, will not necessarily do the same thing. So what does it mean that cells are genetically identical, and what are these things that they're doing differently? Those are great questions. Let's first get to the basics of how bacteria cells behave. Then we'll find out how Mary's experiment is attempting to crack their code. All right, I'm all ears. So the first thing you need to know is that bacterial cells are basically little moving packages of DNA. The DNA is sort of the instruction manual for how to run a cell. I guess you could, you could also think about it as sort of a cookbook in that it contains like information about how to make different things. The DNA, those instructions or books of recipes, are the same in every cell. So wait, if two really simple cells have identical operating instructions, how, how are they not doing the same thing? This is really similar to identical twins. So you might have twins, but they're not the same person. Even though they have the same genetic material, they have different life experiences, and so they end up not being completely identical. So they might be in different classes at school, have different friends. They might look a little bit different or respond differently to people or, or other things they encounter. And cells are, are very similar to that. So what's the cell equivalent of like going to different schools and hanging out with different people? Well, in science words, it's called expressing their genes differently. And so if we look at two cells under the microscope that are right next to each other, they will not express their genes in the same way. What does it mean for cells to express their genes? Well, remember how Mary compared DNA to a cookbook for a cell? The gene would be a particular recipe, um, and by expressing it, it means that you start making that thing. So the cell's like flipping through the cookbook and decides it feels like making uh, pasta tonight. Yeah, and you can think of the cell's decision to make pasta or not make pasta as the cell expressing what it's thinking and feeling. There's a lot of emotional weight in the pasta-making decision, like, especially if they're making it from scratch. That takes a long time. <laughs> right. And believe it or not, it could mean whether the cell lives or dies in the face of stress. So whether cells will be able to tolerate things in their environment that would otherwise potentially kill them. Whoa, so we just went from a delightful evening of homemade pasta with a cell to that cell maybe getting killed? 
I'm thinking of the cell like listening to a podcast, pouring itself a glass of wine, and then the scary music comes on in the background. <laughs> dum, 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 dum. The stakes in the story really just shot up. <laughs> <laughs> Quite a bit. I'm very concerned about the fate of this little bacteria chef. Now you can see cells have problems too. Indeed they do. <laughs> okay, so, but I know that cells don't actually plan on a night in to make pasta. So what's Mary actually looking at? Unless there are pasta bowls that are much tinier than I can possibly conceive of. Well, this is Mary's experiment. It's trying to find out if these little decisions can show us whether the cell is strong or weak. Bigger picture goal of what we're doing is understanding how these different patterns of gene expression, like whether cells turn their genes on and off really rapidly or slowly, has implications for survival under stressful conditions. In other words, Mary watches the cells to see patterns in how they behave. She thinks that those patterns could help her predict whether they live or die during tough times. So how does Mary watch these patterns and then make predictions if one cell isn't like, <laughs> I feel so weak? Okay, so here's where we find out how Mary cooks up this experiment. Ooh, here comes the science recipe. Exactly, yes. So first, Mary has some pretty standard bacteria. You know, your flour, your eggs, whatever. But she adds a twist, a gene that makes the bacteria light up in fluorescent colors. Oh, cool. There's fluorescent colored genes. Can I have those? <laughs> the ones that we use come actually from a, a jellyfish that lives in the ocean. So does a jellyfish like come into a gene donation site every month? Like hopefully they get whatever the equivalent of a jellyfish cookie would be. <laughs> No, the process is more like going on Amazon for jellyfish jeans. <laughs> There's an Amazon for jellyfish jeans? Well, this is crazy, too, for people who don't know about it. We order it, like, over the internet, and you pay somebody, and they make it for you, and they send it to you. Okay, so obviously making something glow is cool, but aside from the novelty, why does Mary order bacteria with jellyfish jeans over the internet? These jeans are called fluorescent reporters. They report how the cell is behaving. It's not so different from a journalist telling you about what's going on in the world. The reporter in the cell will tell you what is happening within the cell. Thank you for joining us for Cell News Now, CNN. I'm Anderson E. Coli. Tonight, why is the Petri dish so divided? <laughs> it's not that kind of reporting. <laughs> oh, I would watch that show. I would too. <laughs> <laughs> so how exactly do these glowing fluorescent genes report the cell news? All right, let's go back to our recipe metaphor. This is the first ingredient of the experiment. They use a light code. I mean, it's effectively like shining a flashlight on them. Mary flashes lights at the bacteria, and the bacteria glows back at her. We can do it in different patterns. So we can do, you know, daytime, nighttime, daytime, nighttime, versus daytime, nighttime. So it's kind of like doing a flashlight code with your neighbor. Exactly. Mary is forcing the cells to respond to changes in light. And light can be a very strong way to control behavior, as we know, because we behave very differently when it's light than when it's dark. Your human body can sense the presence of light. Your body knows that when it starts to get dark, you feel sleepy. Um, and when it gets light outside, that's time to wake up. 
That's so cool. So to go back, Mary wants to see why cells act differently in response to different situations. And so through turning lights on and off at them, she's forcing them to respond. Yes, and these fluorescent genes are the response or the behavior. They send back their own mysterious blinking code. And this is the next step in the experimental recipe. Mary records this like a movie. If you watch that over time, if you play this movie forward, then you'll see that fluorescent colors will sort of flash on and off and they'll turn on for a few hours and then back off again. And two cells that are next to each other might be doing very different things. So like cell movies, are they very dramatic? Here, let's watch one together. Okay, so I see like a bunch of rows of very bright green lights that are kind of like growing and shrinking and kind of like falling apart. Like, looks like fluorescent icicles during melt season. That's sort of what it looks like to me. Yeah, and they're kind of blinking on and off. Some of them are dim, some of them are bright, and they keep dividing. Seriously, can I use this as a music video? (laughs) It looks pretty cool. (laughs) So, But Mary and her colleagues studied these movies to spot patterns in these little moving, blinking bacteria. What I find completely fascinating is that they do very different things, and I I think it's really beautiful to watch. Okay, so Mary brought together all these different tools and techniques to have this really visual way to see the cell's behavior. Right, and we all know experiments aren't just about observing what happened. You have to figure out what it means, what's going on. Like, what does it mean when a cell goes bright and dark, bright, dark, bright, bright, dark, bright, dark? Ultimately, that is the point of the entire experiment. Mary and her colleagues believe that these patterns can say something about how strong the cells are. So our our prediction is that the patterns that they use will have implications for whether they can live or die when they encounter a stressful condition. In other words, if she can say that a cell that goes bright, dark, bright, dark is stronger than a cell that goes bright, dark, bright, dark... Mary will have done a successful experiment. So I feel like this is an obvious question. Like, Why does she want to know this? Is she just training up an army of cell ninja warriors? <laughs> well, Mary wants to be able to work with these cells and tell them to make things. Bacteria are, are super useful for making um, different products. So they're involved in producing food, making medicine. They're producing food, so they are making pasta. (laughs) No, cells are not literally pasta extruders. (laughs) But biological engineers like Mary see every bacteria cell as a potential factory. It can be given instructions to make things through its DNA, which we can program to make things like meat for vegan burgers. Oh, all right. So this is clicking for me. So... Why she wants to know which cells will survive under stress is you want the strong cells in your vegan burger factory because it's stressful there. There's a lot of work to do. (laughs) Exactly. So we used to think of bacteria as really simple, but now that we actually want to work with them and use them, we have to understand exactly why they do what they do. You don't want that factory going haywire and making, like, super sticky glue when what you wanted was a tasty hamburger. (laughs) Basically, Mary's got a lot of work in front of her to prove or disprove her hypothesis. 
we're studying these random behaviors. And so it's entirely possible that the cells will not respond in a predictable fashion. So she's saying her goal is to predict cell behavior, but cell behavior may not be predictable. That's right. And there's a lot of things that could go wrong along the way. Like right now, none of the cells seem to be responding to the lights. They were doing fine, you know, a month ago. Um, And so we will need to figure out what is going on there. And that is certainly frustrating, but it's the nature of like how these experiments go. So one minute they're all like flashlight dance party and the next they're like, no thanks. So what happened? That's something Mary and her team have to figure out. So Mary's experiment is about answering one big question, but there are tons and tons of smaller questions to answer on the journey. There are a lot of things that could go wrong and we have not encountered them all yet. Ooh, so it's like you never know what those crazy cells might do next. They all act so differently from each other. I mean, imagine having literally thousands of identical twins in a Petri dish. Like, there's going to be lots of hijinks before you figure out who's who. (laughs) Can you turn a recipe in the kitchen into a science recipe? Take your favorite recipe and then experiment with it. First, write down your recipe and then decide what you're going to change about it. Is it the ingredients or the cooking method? or the cooking temperature or time it takes. Make some predictions about what you think will happen. When your recipe is ready, find out if you're correct. If not, what happened that you weren't expecting? And what can you change next time? Let's hope your experiment turns out delicious. All right, well, I've been here Kind of a long time, and I have to say, I'm, uh, man, I don't know how I'm going to eat all this stuff. A uh, waiter, ch- oh, I see. We got it. We got another course coming. Whew. All right. Let's have at it. The Jack-O-Lantern Science Mystery. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. It's a special Halloween episode, and this year we're tackling some pumpkin-spiced science. Ooh, are we talking about seasonal squash? Yes. We're solving the mystery of why jack-o'-lanterns perish into a sad, squishy mess every year. We'll crack the case and discover how to make a pumpkin last forever. Right after this. Our Halloween science question comes from our fellow kid podcaster, Ari. I'm Ari, the host of At Your Level, a podcast for kids by kids. And my Halloween-flavored science question is why? Oh, but why does a pumpkin I carve run so much faster than an uncarved pumpkin? Now, I'm assuming that's even the case. And if it is, I think it's because the air gets into the pumpkin faster, which makes it rot faster. I'm not 100% sure. What do you think? And I'm 11, by the way. Thanks, and happy Halloween. That's a good question. It is a bit ironic that jack-o'-lanterns look their scariest, like, several weeks after Halloween. (laughs) 
Yes, they get soft and then they shrink, and soon they're on full-on rot mode. Just a little puddle of grossness. You have to get them off your porch or out of your windowsill before they just completely fall apart. But if you put a festive non-carved pumpkin on that same porch or windowsill, it'll last seemingly forever. So let's join Ari in asking our listeners what they think. Do jack-o'-lanterns rot faster than uncarved pumpkins? And if so, why? We'll give you a moment to think about it before we return to solve a squash mystery. When I heard Ari's question, I knew we needed a detective who could get inside the head of a jack-o'-lantern. And I found just the right person. I'm Michael Mazurik. I'm a vegetable breeder here at Cornell University. A vegetable breeder? Like, that doesn't have detective in the job description. (laughs) You're right. Vegetable breeders are responsible for creating new varieties of vegetables. But where the detectiveness comes in is that Michael's specialty is pumpkin and other types of squash. Yep, squash, pumpkin, and some other vegetables as well, but uh, lots of squash and pumpkin for sure. And tis the season. Tis the season to breed pumpkin. (laughs) (laughs) Michael was actually taking a break from the fall harvest when I talked to him. So he's literally a scientist farmer. Yes. And come Halloween time, that combination results in some pretty interesting jack-o'-lanterns appearing in the lab. I have one student with me here at Cornell. She's been carving jack-o'-lanterns and has started to put them in the freeze dryer. So freeze-dried pumpkin, does that make them look like little shriveled, shrunken heads like from a horror show? It looks like it's mummified, you know, without the wrapping. Halloween is definitely a special time in the squash lab. This is using science to celebrate the season. Well, okay, so now that we know that Michael is qualified to help on our case, what's the first step? Well, like any good squash detective, we begin by using our powers of observation to find clues. Michael pointed us towards our first. Sometimes you have a fruit that doesn't last very long at all. If you leave your raspberries out on the counter, they will start to dry out. And if it's a little slow, they'll also get the fuzziness, the gray fuzz. Huh. Yeah, I've observed that, too. Sometimes you barely have time to eat raspberries before they get all, like, mushy and moldy. But what does that have to do with pumpkins? Use your powers of deduction. What keeps a pumpkin from getting dry and fuzzy? Um, probably the orange part. It's orange, and that's what, that, that's it, yeah. <laughs> Let's see what Michael says. Pumpkins are a type of fruit that usually lasts longer because they have kind of a multi-layered coating. I was right. The pumpkin is coated in orange, and it's the orange. (laughs) Well, maybe it's not just the color on its own. I don't know. Seems pretty open and shut case here. (laughs) So the skin, the orange part of the pumpkin, has a wax to it. Wait, so it's the wax? I guess that's why we don't eat the skin of a pumpkin. It's like all waxy. (laughs) You can also feel it when you rub the pumpkin with your finger. And that layer of wax keeps moisture out and in. And so that wax is protective, and that's what's sealing in the water. And I think that's what Ari's noticing. Once he pops a hole in that, then all the moisture can leak back out all the holes. 
Okay, I get it now. So the pumpkin can dry out like a raspberry if there's a hole in its protective covering. Yes. All fruits hold water inside of them. It's what they need to grow and stay plump and juicy. Yeah, because when you get dried fruits, they're all like wrinkly and chewy. Exactly. All right, it seems like we're getting somewhere here. Next, Michael turned his attention to the weapon, the knife. If you have one of those little pumpkin carver knives that has like the little serrated wavy teeth, you can hear it as it cuts through the skin, a rump, rump. I knew it. It was the knife. I had it here on my clue card. (laughs) Yes, the knife is involved, but that's not our mystery. Oh, okay. Well, go on. Well, if you've ever bought a pumpkin carving kit, it includes a knife with sharp teeth. That is going through a tough tissue. No, so he's talking about that, like, thick part that's under the orangey rind. It's like the pumpkin lining. Or the defensive walls guarding the pumpkin castle. So it can be really hard, and that's a good barrier to keep out all of the bacteria and fungus that would colonize it. Wait, so what does that mean? Like, bacteria and fungus would colonize it? Big multiplying groups of bacteria and mold are called colonies. That's what you see making raspberries get fuzzy and gross. Where do those colonizing bacteria and mold come from? Well, remember how Ari suspected the air is what's rotting the jack-o'-lantern? In the air is bacteria and mold spores, and their job is to break things down. And that's how trees run compost and everything turns back into soil when it, like, falls on the ground. Oh my gosh, this goes so much deeper than we thought. Rotting is everywhere. Yeah, it's called decomposition. It affects every living thing on the planet. And it also keeps our planet growing. Oh my gosh, so is this what happened to the oranges in our fruit bowl too? All the dots are getting connected. (laughs) But let's not lose focus. We're still on the pumpkin. We're not through the pumpkin yet because there's one final hidden layer. A hidden layer? What could that be? Yes, a hidden layer, so well hidden, Michael says we actually have to look for it on a different kind of squash. It's easiest, I think, to see on a butternut squash. He says if you peel a butternut squash, the third layer will appear right before your eyes. It will start to make a latex, a sap. Wait, a squash makes sap like like a pine tree does, like that sticky stuff? And that's the final layer? Yes. And then if you touch it and then rub your fingers and let it dry, they'll stick together. I've touched this layer many times without realizing what it was. But it's the reason why I now avoid peeling butternut squash. Well, then I'd say it works pretty well if it's keeping you away. I just buy it pre-cut now. (laughs) (laughs) Anyhow, the sap is meant to protect the squash if an insect or animal took a bite out of it. It could grow its own band-aid with this latex sap. Wait, so a squash can make itself a Band-Aid? That's amazing. Like, all better. Little bug bite. No big deal. (laughs) It's kind of crazy, but it's also no match for a carving knife. And so the problem for the pumpkin is once you cut into it, you're making big holes in the place it would normally patch over with its sap. Oh, I see. Things are really beginning to add up. Now you've taken all three layers. You've taken out the wax, you've taken out the woody cell wall barrier, and you've also taken out its chemical defense of that sap. 
okay, I feel like we're at the point in the story where the detective just is putting everything together. This is going to be good. Should I get popcorn? So by breaching all three, yes, it starts to leak air and water vapor will dry out from the inside for sure. And any bacteria that land in or mold, you'll start to see it as black and blue polka dots. And then you'll need to get it off the porch while you can still pick it up. When you pick it up and your fingers go through, you've waited too long. (laughs) It's so satisfying. It was the knife in the pumpkin at Halloween. Yes, after the knife carved the pumpkin, a natural process began. The pumpkin started to dry out and bacteria and mold landed inside of it. That meant it decomposed much faster than a pumpkin with all of its protective layers still intact. Case closed. So there's just one thing that's bugging me about this case. What's that? Is there some way that we can, like, save jack-o'-lanterns or keep them from having to rot in the first place? How? What do you mean? Well, what if we could save jack-o'-lanterns by, like, making them into pie before they decompose, and then instead of decomposing, they just get eaten? (laughs) That's an interesting idea. It depends on what kind of pumpkin you're using. So I asked Michael about different kinds of pumpkins. So that is a great question. That is one that most people never get to the bottom to ever. Wow, we're tapping into some deep pumpkin mysteries here. Michael said that there's three species of pumpkins and a huge number of varieties. There's the orange jack-o'-lanterns that you can make a pie out of, but it won't be a very good one. I actually did try to do this once, and so I know Michael is right. They're really stringy and watery when baked and not good for pie. The big pumpkin patch pumpkins are really meant for carving. So it's just their destiny to have a weird face on them. It's like an unusual destiny for a vegetable. Yes, and this is the biggest pumpkin surprise. The puree you find in the pumpkin can isn't from a pumpkin at all. That is actually a pumpkin-shaped butternut squash. They make that out of. Hold on. What? I've been deceived my whole life. They're called Dickinson pumpkins, and they're pale orange and oval-shaped. While they're called pumpkins, they're more closely related to a butternut squash than your jack-o'-lantern. Most people would never know that about their pumpkin pies. I'll never look at a can of pumpkin pie filling the same way again. I'll never be able to not tell somebody this. (laughs) Okay, so maybe we shouldn't upcycle our jack-o'-lanterns into pie, but there's got to be some way that we can save a jack-o'-lantern. I think I might have an idea. What is it? Well, you know before you can carve a jack-o'-lantern, you have to scoop out the seeds? Right, and your hands get all gooey, and then you either roast them or, like, throw them in the compost. Stop right there. There's a third thing you can do with seeds. What? Save them. Save them for what? So you can plant them and grow new jack-o'-lanterns from your old jack-o'-lantern. Ah, the circle of life. It just continues forever. (laughs) Exactly. Pumpkins are actually meant to decompose so that they give nutrients back to the soil 
And new seeds from inside the jack-o'-lantern can grow and thrive in the old one. And one jack-o'-lantern can make, like, so many more jack-o'-lanterns. But how did you know this? Well, I got a tip from a squash detective slash scientist. <laughs> if you pop open a pumpkin seed, you'll see that it has these two halves. Those are the first leaves, that the cotyledons, that are going to pop out of the ground. Wow, so the baby jack-o'-lantern seedlings are already in your pumpkin. It's like a pumpkin patch starter kit. Yes, and all you need to do is dry out the seeds for a week or so until one snaps when you bend it. Then you save them during the winter in a cool, dry place like your fridge. Then you can plant the seeds for many more future pumpkin mysteries. Oh, goodness, y'all, I'm stuffed. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this chair. I'm so full. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed today's culinary road trip. If you can, I'd love it if you could send us drawings of your favorite foods at our email at tumblepodcast at gmail.com. If you want more episodes for the break, you can pledge just $1 a month on Patreon for a collection of bonus episodes, including bonus interviews for each of the episodes included in this combo pack. Also, be on the lookout for more road trip episodes this summer. Thanks to all the scientists we met on this road trip. Sarah Robertson Lentz is our editor and made the episode art. Eric Kuhn engineered and mixed the original episodes. Lindsay Patterson wrote the original episodes. Our interns, Elliot Hijaj and Grace Ingram, wrote this episode and Elliot produced it. And I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I made all of the music. Tumble is a production of Tumble Media. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for more stories of science discovery. Thanks so much for listening to that very long episode. And now that it's over, we've got some birthday shoutouts to give to our supporters on Patreon. Karina Joy, happy 6th birthday on June 25th. Every day, Mommy, Daddy, and Magnolia are surprised by the new discoveries you make and talents you share. Your parents are so proud of how you've become a loving and caring big sister since Julian arrived in September. Happy birthday to Andrew Kent on June 27th. Happy 8th birthday to Holden, also on June 27th. I hope it's an awesome one. Dexter, happy 7th birthday on June 29th. And happy ninth birthday to Tony D on July 1st. Mama May and Daddy Say, love you. Poppy Singh, happy seventh birthday on July 3rd. Love from Mika, Hannah, Mummy, and Papa. And happy fifth birthday to Rune on July 4th. Mama and Papa love seeing what wonders you discover in the world. Thanks to all of you and to everyone who supports Tumble on Patreon. If you want to get a birthday shout-out of your own like these fine folks, simply support Tumble on Patreon at the $5 level or higher by going to patreon.com slash tumblepodcast. Once again, that's patreon.com slash tumblepodcast.